الجزيرة بودكاست A generation ago in Sudan, growing up in North Darfur, was a beautiful childhood. And that's what Namat remembers. People eat together, people share. And it's a place where there is no difference between like rich or poor. Being in my home town, you feel like you have your own world. But almost two decades ago, Namat's world changed. It was the beginning of what she called a genocide. The tragedy in Darfur, for years, despite bold declarations, genocide has been committed. My dreams were, were cut short. She was forced to leave her home, and it breaks her heart to watch the same thing happen to a new generation of Darfuris. People arrive with gunshot wounds. They tell us men, boys, even young girls were taken prisoner along the way. In April, a power struggle between two military leaders tore apart Khartoum, the capital, and the country. And in Darfur, it's reawakened old wounds, the divisions drawn along ethnic lines that led to systematic killings. Now hundreds are reported dead in West Darfur, and tens of thousands have fled for their lives. The governor of Sudan's West Darfur region has been killed. Sudan's army says that the paramilitary rapid support forces was behind his death. According to the reports, in days preceding his assassination, Abakar had accused the RSF and allied militias of violence, calling it a genocide. The Sudanese government didn't help us. They see what is happening and just watch us burn. They blame the rapid support forces. So who are the rapid support forces? Where did they come from? And why did they have so many people in Darfur running for their lives again? This is the first of a two-part series on the crisis happening in Darfur. Part one, Sudan's RSF. I'm Natasha Del Toro, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Namat's only using her first name to protect those she left behind in Kapkabia in North Darfur. It's mountainous and dry for the most part, but this time of year, when the rains begin to come, parts of it can get green and lush. My hometown is the most beautiful city in the world. People are very, very nice. I have a large extended family, so... Always people come together, whether it's like good or bad. When she starts talking about the past, about growing up there before the millennium, she almost glows. Back then, Darfur was a place where many different tribes lived as neighbors. Some considered themselves Arab, and there were other ethnicities too, of African descent. But it just wasn't the focus back then. It wasn't perfect, but it was peaceful. My mom is kind of someone that wants to ground you in the values in our community. My dad is a kind of person who wants you to have your own voice and also be strong and be of help to other people. We have this like collective feeling of like you feel you are a part of a community. But Darfur was far from the capital and far less developed. Many people there felt forgotten. So Namat's plan after college was to devote her career to improving people's lives in Darfur. And that plan worked for a while. 
one time we were, um, this was like early 2002, we were in the field. We had a training, a village development committee training in a village. We were there with them, enjoyed every bit of being there, and we left. Two days later, Namat and her colleagues passed by that same village again on the way home. They were attacked. Part of the village was completely burned. It was the first time she'd seen anything like it. We was in a state of shock. People started telling us the story of, they saw people in uniform riding camels and horses. The villagers explained to her how they'd welcomed these soldiers. And in return, one of the men in uniform started taking the villagers' belongings. A villager asked the soldier what was happening. And then he immediately shot that man in the head. And after that, they started like shooting everyone, and then they set fire. They took all the cows and all the goats and sheep, and they shot the people dead and left. It was still 2002, and Namat was witnessing a rising tide of systemic violence. Militias like these would soon become known throughout Darfur as the Janjaweed, or devils on horseback in Arabic. They called themselves Popular Defense Forces. A few days after those first attacks, Namat was at home and her mother suddenly came to get her. She walked out to the gate of her house to take a look. And I see the smoke coming from all part of the city. And I see the flame. Like about 50 villages were burned in one day. Children were coming without their parents. Some of the children who ran away came. They said there are many dead people falling into ground. So people gathered and tried to go to help. And then the military told them not to cross the valley. Like anyone across the valley considers themselves dead. Did you understand the politics at the time? Were you aware of, of who they were, where they came from, what they wanted? It was horrible. Like, we have to understand it as we go. People immediately started asking all these questions. Why this is happening and what is this? This Janjaweed were recruited in the early 2000s and then equipped to kill the people of Darfur. We have lost so many people. Young people who are like shot, like they're just sitting, like walking in the street and then shot. My cousins, uh, my nephew, um, so many people. And then they expanded them. By 2004, Namat had already had to stop her NGO work. She was targeted by militias herself, and she fled Darfur with thousands of others. The Janjaweed isn't necessarily a people. It is a concept in Sudan. Matt Nashed's been covering the Middle East and more recently Sudan as a journalist and analyst for over a decade. Outsourcing violence on the cheap and providing them, bestowing them absolute impunity to commit as many horrific crimes as they want. And traditionally speaking, the people that were outsourced to do this fighting were camel herders and pastoralists, which through their lifestyle identify as being Arab and historically sedentary farmers that work on the same land 
are seen as non-Arab or African. But these communities are incredibly porous, and these labels are very, very blurry between them. Matt says before the Janjaweed arrived in Darfur, there were other insurgencies there. There was the uprising in Darfur, among mostly non-Arab groups, demanding a greater political profile of people of Darfur, greater economic prosperity. The movement's political leader, Abdul Wahid, started the Darfur rebellion in 2001, saying they wanted social and economic equality for the region. They did quite well in the very early days. In fact, they seized an airport in 2003 in Al-Fasha, which is in the capital of North Darfur, that petrified the military government of Omar al-Bashir. Omar al-Bashir was the military leader of Sudan then, and the Janjaweed were his response to that Darfuri uprising. What he did is that he decided that instead of recruiting Arabs and non-Arabs, the fear was maybe non-Arabs would take the weapons and the training and then go join rebel groups. So he tried to ethnicize the fighting. So effectively, he went to the Arab groups and one Arab tribal chief in particular named Musa Hilal. Hilal aligned his tribe with the government and he says the Darfur rebels are traitors in the pay of the West. Al Jazeera interviewed Hilal in 2007. They are just instruments for foreign aims. They are carrying out a mission in which they are not the decision makers. But at the same time, Matt says Bashir was paying Hilal well. He promised the chief money, weapons and training. And also that he would be able to loot as much as he wants from any of the villages that they take over. So they thought it was a good deal. They thought it was work. And so they decided to be hired as mercenaries within Sudan. And so this was the latest incarnation of the Janjaweed in Darfur. And they committed some of the most horrific crimes. In 2003, inter-ethnic violence was brutally crushed by the government-backed Janjaweed Arab militia, leaving 300,000 civilians dead. They began to burn villages to the ground. They began using rape as a weapon of war. They started to shoot and kill based on perceived ethnic affiliation. And they started to loot. They looted everything that they could possibly get. People's savings, people's livestock, everything in the markets. They did all of this to the point where the amount of violence that was taking place in 2003-2004 created global outcries and accusations of ethnic cleansing from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty, and then later on of genocide by the U.S. government. Including then-U.S. President George W. Bush. Genocide is the only word for what is happening in Darfur. But the violence didn't stop. In many ways, it never did. What that means for today, after the break. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, a dramatized podcast from Al Jazeera. In this season, we hear from some of history's most notable women. An unconventional and extraordinary artist. Me? I am Frida Kahlo. A communist revolutionary. Everyone in China knew my face. You've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. Hindsight. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
it is a deliberate genocidal attack, I think. I would put it that way. Namat's not talking about her memories of Darfur when she says that. She's talking about what's happening there today. The nature of the attack is very systematic. The rabbi supporters will come into the city. They first start removing survival means, looting the biggest food storage in the town, World Food Program uh, warehouses or grains storage in the market. They loot them as much as they can, and then they burn them. Then they go into government institution, destroy them. They go to the police, and then they go to the hospitals and pharmacies. They take all the supplies, and then they set fire on them or bomb them with RBG and other machine guns. So what does the Janjaweed of 20 years ago have to do with Sudan's rapid support forces today? Many point to the rise of one man. Well, Mohammed Hamdan Dablu, otherwise known as Hemiti, essentially was one of the fighters in the background during 2003-2004, during the, the peak of the violence in Darfur. However, he was always a very explicit and cutthroat businessman, transactionary from the, his very first days that he appeared on the scene. Dagalo was someone who has no education, uh, was originally coming from Chad in a very poor family, but also he was a bandit, like someone who goes out, attack people, rob them. And so he was good to his weapon. And probably like within that context, they consider him to be brave. His reputation preceded him, Matt says, and his cutthroat business sense only pushed him further ahead. After making a name for himself through how well he did on the battlefield, around 2007, he protested against the central government with a number of other recruits because they weren't getting their money on time from the central government for the fighting that they did. So then what Himiti decided to do was that he threatened the central government that he would form a mixed militia of Arabs and non-Arabs and fight against the government. And so Bashir got very scared former dictator Omar al-Bashir at the time, got very, very worried about this. And so he quickly responded by essentially um, providing Himiti with new and elevated powers and deciding to give him his own militia and a number of lucrative financial benefits. And according to Matt, this formula worked, in Bashir's eyes at least. This laid the groundwork for the official formalization of Himiti's forces and to the rapid support forces in 2013. They give them the rapid support force because whenever they are called, no matter what the task is, they do it. If they want them to burn a village, they will do it. If they want them to kill someone, so they call them the rapid support forces. Bashir thought he'd handled the threats posed to his own power as well, not just by Hameti, but by anyone attempting a coup. The RSF, which is its acronym, was under the direct control of Omar al-Bashir. He believed that Hamidi would be able to thwart any of these attempted coups if he had his ability to get rich himself, get militarized via the president, and as a result of that, he would have a reason to remain loyal to the president 
which was Bashir at the time. He even often called uh, Himiti Himeyati, which means my protection. Soon, the rapid responses began to extend beyond Darfur, first to other parts of Sudan, then to Sudan's borders, then beyond them. Libya, Yemen. By 2017, the RSF was becoming a geopolitical force. There was another separate revenue stream, essentially deploying its men as mercenaries. And so this brought them closer to the United Arab Emirates in particular, who was fighting at the time along with Saudi-led coalition against the Houthis. So who did they decide to reach out to? Well, Imiti and the RSF. The Rapid Support Force were also deployed in Yemen with Hamedi as their leader. And so this is what brought the Gulf, particularly the Emirates and Hamedi, very, very close to one another. Helped swell the ranks into the RSF. But where was all the money coming from to pay for these fighters? In an interview with Al Jazeera, Hameti confirmed he plays some part in keeping his forces paid. Do you confirm that your troops are not being financed by your own resources? You could say I have my own sources of income. I, like any other businessman, can lend a helping hand to the armed forces or the police as a token of appreciation. The rapid support forces are regular forces with their own duties, restrictions, rights and obligations, not my personal militias. I cannot afford it. The resources in question? Gold. Hemeti does admit he holds rights to Sudan's biggest gold mine in northern Darfur. We were among the first to discover gold in Sudan. We used metal detectors and ventured out in the desert, searching for the gold. And the empire did not stop there. Millions of dollars in gold from Hemeti's family mines were sold to the UAE. And then he was introduced through the biggest doors to the international community and the regional powers. His reach kept extending. And in April 2019, everything in Sudan changed. Let's just update you on uh, the breaking news this hour, that military coup that's unfolded in Sudan over the last few hours. It was a revolution. So the irony is very clear here. The very man that Bashir had elevated and emboldened and had backed uh, since 2008 and then 2013 because he believed that he would protect him was the same man that decided to take the move to oust his parent, essentially. Omar al-Bashir was ousted in April 2019. With Bashir out of the scene, the RSF suddenly was answerable to nobody. They were technically not legally under the military's command. And at the same time, they had controlled lucrative gold mines. And they also had relations with the United Arab Emirates through gold dealings that they were having, gold transactions, but also through the transactions and the hiring of of RSF fighters to fight as mercenaries in Yemen. And so what we saw now was a very dangerous development for the RSF. With Bashir out of the picture, essentially, the RSF and Himiti himself was able to engage directly on a regional and international basis. And that allowed the RSF to consolidate um, its its alliances and partnerships with uh, a number of powerful regional countries uh, that had outsized influence within Sudan. 
once Bashir was disposed, many Sudanese demonstrators gathered into a sit-in that's lasted months, and they called for the leader of the military to step aside. They wanted full civilian rule. And then the man that replaced him was somebody that had a history, actually, of heading military intelligence in central Darfur in 2008. And this was Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. Abdel Fattah al-Burhan is the other figure in Sudan's current struggle for power. He's now the head of the Sudanese armed forces. But back then, Burhan and Ahmeti had a delicate alliance. So much so that the two of them had coordinated a massacre on the sit-in that took place on June 3rd, 2019. More than 122 people were killed. The RSF were seen as the ones executing the massacre, but open source intelligence tells us that it was carefully coordinated and planned by a number of security units. There was people that were thrown essentially into the Nile. A number of dead bodies were piled up on the street. People went missing. For three years, that alliance kept the military in power and kept Sudan's democracy sidelined. But eventually, it too collapsed. On April 15th of this year, tension between the RSF and the army broke out into full-scale fighting. A turning point in the conflict in Sudan. The exodus of thousands of people in a single day, chased out of their country under gunfire. Their leaders killed. Militias that have laid siege to Al Janaina for two months, they say now all but control the capital of West Darfur. And now Namat spends a lot more time checking her phone. Who is there now of your family? Everyone. Uh, I'm the only one living in the state, so my sisters, my brothers, my mom, my uncles, aunts, and everyone. Shortly after the fighting, she tried to call every relative she could. They held up the phone so that she could hear what was happening there. They would have me hear the noise of the bombing and shooting. And then after that, the lines went off. Mostly, she's just left thinking about how this has all been allowed to happen again. And that's The Take. We'll be back tomorrow with part two of this series, the international community's attempts to help Sudan and how they failed. This episode was produced by Amy Walters and David Enders with Sonia Bagat, Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Khaled Sultan, and me, Natasha Del Toro, in for Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexander Locke is the Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio.